brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Walpaw, and we've got a really interesting and I think very useful show for you today. I have with me Dr. Jason Chi, who is a cardiac anesthesiologist at the VA Medical Center in Palo Alto, California, and has asked himself a really interesting question, or he and his colleagues have, which is, how long after someone has COVID should we potentially do surgery and anesthesia for them? And uh, interestingly, I haven't heard this being talked a huge amount about, but I think it's a question that we have all asked ourselves and will be asking ourselves more and more. And so I, I'm really excited to have Jason on the show to talk about some of the information they found and the recommendations they've put together, at least for themselves. Um, and we want to be clear up front that we don't actually, this is not a societal guideline. We aren't telling people how to do this in their hospital. You should discuss it with your own hospital committees. But it'll be interesting, I think, for you to hear what Jason and his colleagues have done and how they got where they got. Does that sound right, Jason? Welcome to the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Jed. Happy to be here. So let me ask you uh, to just start off by telling the audience a little bit what about you? Who, who are you? <laughs> I, I said you're a cardiac <laughs> anesthesiologist. If you want to add to that, yeah. please do. Um, yeah. And then how, you know, what, why did you decide to do this and try to come up with these guidelines? What were, what were you seeing and what was your concerns that led you to this? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so yes, thanks again for having me on, Jed. Um, uh, as, uh, as Jed mentioned, I'm a cardiac anesthesiologist as well as a general anesthesiologist. Um, I work currently at the uh, Veterans Affairs um, Medical Center in uh, Palo Alto, California. And um, I'm originally from Chicago, born and raised. I lived out there for many, many years, did all my training out in Chicago. Uh, lifelong Bulls fan and a Bears fan, uh, although they've had some tough years recently, but uh, we'll, get, we'll get through them. <laughs> and uh, been out in California for a little bit now. Um, and uh, working at the VA and uh, teaching residents as well as doing my own cases there. Um, it's been fantastic. Um, in terms of how we got started with this project and what we got interested, well, it, it actually got started with because 
we were beginning to encounter these patients who had recovered from COVID and they were coming in for surgery. And we realized that we didn't have an answer to the question of what is the appropriate amount of time a patient should recover from COVID before undergoing surgery, uh, with the focus being on minimizing their risk of post-op complications. Uh, and, and we were, Jason, were you guys seeing, yeah. sorry, yes. uh, were you guys seeing, yeah. um, you know, uh, significant numbers of complications or was it just a concern that there would be what, what, you know, what was making you think we need to know this answer? Right, right. No, good question. Yeah. Obviously at our hospital, we have, um, patients with, you know, pretty a high level of comorbidities and high level of acuity, uh, and chronic medical conditions. And, um, that's a great question. We weren't actually seeing complications, thankfully, but there was a concern about complications um, related to, you know, ongoing physiologic change changes from COVID. So, and patients who yep. are coming in from surgery. Yeah. So basically, yep. um, you know, as they say, necessity is the mother of, in, of invention. And um, we, you know, you know, we sort of asked ourselves, well, is there any guidance on this? Uh, is there any literature out there on this? And um, there really wasn't. And as you mentioned, there's not a whole lot of talk about it, which is a little bit surprising. So um, that's what uh, inspired us to uh, go on our little project and uh, come up with some recommendations and um, yeah. uh, put together the existing knowledge. Yeah, that's great. And I'm glad you did. You know, I uh, myself in the ICU have seen a couple of people at least um, already who had previous COVID totally recovered or, you know, felt they were totally recovered, maybe had some just... You know, if you really pushed, you could find maybe a couple little mm-hmm. symptoms, but basically had recovered, had surgery and did remarkably poorly, um, mm. you know, otherwise healthy people who shouldn't have either been in the ICU or should have had a very straight, uh, easy course in the ICU who struggled to come off oxygen, for example, post-op. So wow. I do think wow. that, that this is a, a, an important issue and that we yeah. will start seeing complications. Yes. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, this uh, 12, 13 million people you know, as of today, and, uh, you know, that turns out to be about one in every 28 uh, Americans uh, has had COVID, unfortunately. And, yeah, unfortunately, it's uh, we're still in the middle of this pandemic. And, uh, yes, it's a question that uh, we're not only going to be encountering, but that folks are encountering probably right this minute um, in operating rooms uh, around the country, if not around the world. Yeah, right. absolutely. Yeah. So, wh- how, and so, you know, as you said, there wasn't a lot out there. So how did you guys go about putting together recommendations for yourself. Yeah, yeah. So what we did was, you know, we we started with just a liter- simple literature search. I mean, we looked at the ASA, we looked at the American College of Surgeons, we looked at the CDC, uh, we looked at up-to-date, all the sort of usual places, and uh, really only found very sort of generic guidance um, regarding this specific topic. Um, and so what we did was uh, I recruited two of my colleagues whom I, you know, I'd like to thank and uh, recognize, uh, Carlos Brun and uh, Jody Lang. Uh, and so, uh, the three of us, uh, we did a, um, a literature search and we collected information on three aspects, uh, sort of a three pronged approach. One was, uh, emerging knowledge about COVID and its pathophysiology and the physiologic changes that it causes in the body. As we know, COVID can affect virtually all major organ systems. And it seems like not a week goes by that we learn something new about COVID and its effects on um, the human body. It's really, um, really a truly evolving um, type of situation. 
Uh, second is we used um, existing knowledge of other disease processes and their relationship with perioperative risk. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But obviously, there's a, quite a body of literature um, that relates to um, existing uh, comorbidities, as well as acute, um, uh, acute infections, uh, respiratory infections, and their uh, relationship with perioperative risk. And the third was that we had some literature from previous pandemics, uh, namely the 2009 uh, H1N1 influenza pandemic. And so we were able to use um, some of the information from that, uh, the literature from that, and the recovery course of that um, uh, to inform our uh, literature search as well. Great. So you, you know, essentially you looked at things that were as similar as possible to, you know, what you were interested in. Um, And uh, so what did you find? What did you guys come up with? Yeah. So the the intent behind uh, our project here was that we were going to do the literature search, gather the science together, and then we wanted to create a, a clinical decision tool that would aid surgeons and anesthesiologists in making a decision about Uh, the question of how long should a patient who has recovered from COVID wait before having surgery and anesthesia with the goal of minimizing postoperative complications. Uh, I do want to emphasize that this is a question that's distinct from the question of retesting or the uh, question of isolation, um, because most, if not all, hospitals already have protocols in place, pretty detailed protocols uh, regarding retesting of patients who have previously tested positive. Um, and then also protocols in terms of when can we release patients from isolation? When can we feel confident that they're not infectious anymore? Um, but this is a different question. So this is a question about how do we minimize postoperative complications in these patients who have COVID? Um, and so we uh, did this literature search and we came up with sort of a um, simple uh, clinical decision tool in the form of a table that we felt uh, would be very useful for surgeons and anesthesiologists. And we can um, include that if you want. Um, I don't know if you actually, you guys may want to wait until yeah. um, you kind of go through whatever publication processes, but it's, right. we may be able to at some point late put that uh, in the show notes, but also, um, you know, Jason, if you can kind of walk us through it, that'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so the, t- the timing we, we call the table, the timing of intermediate risk and high risk surgery after COVID-19 diagnosis. Uh, the reason that we specifically, looked at intermediate risk and high risk is that for low risk surgery, which we will classify in our, um, for the purposes of our paper here, low risk surgery is considered office-based surgery or very superficial cosmetic or surgery, which does not require um, anything beyond local anesthesia. So those things I think we were not really considering uh, for the purposes of our uh, literature search, but in terms of intermediate risk and high risk surgery, which the vast majority of us as anesthesiologists will be involved in, uh, we came up with this table, um, basically a both a symptom-driven and a time-driven uh, approach. So sort of a hybrid approach um, to um, how to approach these patients uh, after they've had recovery from COVID. So the first category is um, patients were either asymptomatic during their COVID-19 infection, or they had only mild transient symptoms, meaning fever, headache. So just like as the descriptor says, mild and transient. Uh, and we came up with a suggested minimum wait time for four weeks from the time of diagnosis, uh, until the actual time of surgery. And I'll go into a little bit later about why we chose time from diagnosis versus uh, time from symptom onset 
or time from symptom offset. And um, I can go into that in a little bit more detail later. Uh, the second category is patients who are symptomatic during their COVID infection. So patients particularly who had cough or shortness of breath, um, chest pain, fatigue, uh, more, you know, more sort of um, uh, significant symptoms, perhaps longer lasting as well. Um, we came up with a suggested minimum wait time of six weeks from the time of diagnosis to the time that they undergo surgery. Uh, the next category that we had was patients who are diabetic, uh, hospitalized, um, or are immunocompromised. And obviously, these three categories represent patients who obviously have more serious physiologic changes and uh, who are more predisposed to serious disease, uh, to serious COVID disease. And uh, for them, for this category of patients, we had eight to 10 weeks as the minimum wait time from diagnosis. And then finally, the, in the more severe category is the uh, patients who were admitted to an ICU. Obviously, these patients were quite ill. Um, we didn't make any distinction between whether they had been in, intubated or not. We didn't feel that uh, the, the, the literature was able to give us that detail, level of granularity. But uh, anyone who was admitted to the ICU, um, 12 weeks, uh, we felt was a pretty reasonable uh, suggestion for wait times. Um, after their operation. And uh, yeah, I'd be, ha I'd be happy to kind of walk through each, each of those categories and how we came up with those timelines as well. Um, so yeah, yeah, maybe give some, you know, examples of yeah. also like what you, I think you said it kind of uh, for asymptomatic or mild transient, you're talking about like a headache, et cetera. Right. Um, right. You know, you mentioned the cough, the shortest breath. And then for the, for a diabetic, you, you're putting someone in that category as a diabetic, regardless of their control or, you know, they could be well controlled as long if they have the diagnosis of diabetes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's a tough question. I mean, if, if, you know, is, is a patient who has, really good control of, you know, di their diabetes, their A1Cs under good control. Are they at less risk for uh, severe COVID or are they, are they at less risk for um, post-op uh, complications uh, after surgery? It's really tough to say. I mean, the, the literature really does not have anything out there that I'm aware of that breaks um, that question down to that level of uh, detail. Um, yeah. But we do know that patients with diabetes, um, have a higher risk of having severe COVID. We do know that they have a higher risk of being hospitalized and of being admitted to the ICU. I think there's pretty robust data out there on this during this current pandemic. Um, so we felt that generally speaking, uh, diabetes was a higher risk category. Um, in addition to the fact that we already know that, and this is where the pre-existing knowledge comes in as well, is that we know that patients with diabetes represent um, a mild immunocompromised state uh, and so, so that, yeah, put on, putting all those factors together, we felt that it was appropriate to put him in a higher risk category. Yep. Sounds good. And do you want to just say a word about how you, you said you want to talk about or come back to how you thought about time from diagnosis versus time from something else? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so that, that was a question that we encountered kind of early in our feedback uh, when we were, um, you know, showing this paper to some of our colleagues in our department was, uh, well, why did you choose time from diagnosis? Why not uh, time from symptom onset? Or why not time from symptom offset? Um, and there's two reasons for that. One is that the time of diagnosis is a known entity, right? I mean, it's a, there's a definite date. There's a time and date stamp, if you will, um, on that. Whereas um, time from time of symptom onset can be pretty vague. And that's based on the patient's recollection, right? Um, and so that can be sort of all over the place. And that's 
not very, that can be pretty ambiguous at times. Same thing with symptom um, offset as well. Uh, again, if you were to ask the patient about it, it would be entirely subjective. The patient could say, well, I don't remember exactly. Maybe it was this day, it was that day. Um, so we felt that the time of diagnosis was sort of a definite landmark, uh, sort of a stick in the ground, as if you will, um, for us to start with. The other thing is that the other reason we chose that was because the only study which looked at this exact question, um, timing of surgery after COVID recovery and post-op complications, they used as um, their, um, for their time, timelines, uh, time of diagnosis as well. So in that study, they had uh, used that. So we felt that it was appropriate to sort of go along with that yeah. and, and then use that. That makes a lot of sense. All right. So do you want to walk through the table? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, in the first category, we, like I mentioned, we had asymptomatic or mild transient symptoms. Um, We chose four weeks as the minimum length of time. And uh, it appears to have support from both the emerging literature as well as pre-existing literature uh, regarding respiratory infections after surgery. We know that um, one of the main organ systems that's affected by covid is obviously the respiratory system. I think, uh, you know, that's pretty well established. Um, We know from previous literature that airway hyperreactivity um, can persist from two to to four weeks after a uh, respiratory infection. We know that. Um, We've also found that a respiratory infection within the month preceding surgery is independently associated with postoperative pulmonary complications. And this is, you know, this is data from the pre-COVID era. Um, So again, um, do we have great data from the COVID era. Uh, we don't, but um, that doesn't, I, I don't feel that that absolves us from the responsibility of at least looking through the literature um, and trying to make analogies from, uh, you know, from our existing knowledge and trying to transfer that uh, to our current pandemic. Um, the four weeks was also chosen because like I had mentioned a little bit earlier, there is one study out there that examined this question. It's called the COVID Surge Collaborative. It's out of um, England. And they looked at 122 patients who underwent cancer surgery after a a prior uh, COVID-19 diagnosis. And uh, their focus was on postoperative pulmonary complications, which they defined as pneumonia, ARDS, and or unexpected ventilation within 30 days after um, their surgery. And uh, it's very interesting. They found an odds ratio of 3.8 for pulmonary complications if the patient had had a previous COVID infection. Um, and, but strangely enough, in their data, four weeks seemed to be the inflection point. So after four weeks, um, the risk of pulmonary complications and mortality were actually 0%, whereas uh, prior to four weeks, um, they had a significantly increased risk of pulmonary complications. Um, So a couple of notes of caution about this study. It's a very small study, 122 patients. Um, Unfortunately, the authors were not able to um, describe the severity of illness in the patient cohort and any relationship between patient illness and uh, wait time of surgery and then um, postoperative pulmonary complications. So I don't think the sample size of 122 allowed them to um, run those kind of analyses, which is you know, unfortunate, but that's the, you know, that's the nature of um, the study. Um, the other thing of note in this study is that patients with a pre-existing respiratory illness had um, a 2.3 odds ratio of pulmonary complications. So 
Um, so again, to break it down, it seems like from this limited study of 122 patients who underwent cancer surgery after a COVID diagnosis, it seems that having surgery within four weeks of the diagnosis was associated with um, a much higher risk of pulmonary comp- post-op pulmonary complications. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, moving on to the uh, the symptomatic. So patients who are symptomatic with cough, uh, shortness of breath. Um, again, we felt that since we had arrived at the time frame of four weeks for the asymptomatic and mild transient symptom patients, we felt that six weeks was um, a very reasonable uh, wait time for symptomatic patients who um, who have you know recovered from their cough and their shortness of breath. Um, but are, and now, now are coming from surgery. Again, not a whole lot of data regarding this specific question, but again, we were sort of extrapolating um, from the existing knowledge that I had just discussed. And then um, we were also extrapolating from some of the other more severe categories as well. So the diabetics hospitalized, which I'll get into as well. Um, in terms of the diabetic hospitalized immunocompromised patients, we had recommended um, eight to 10 weeks uh, for these patients from the time of their diagnosis to the time they have surgery. And uh, like we mentioned before, patients with diabetes, uh, they're a high-risk category as it relates to COVID disease. Um, they're more likely to be hospitalized. They're more likely to have severe COVID, more likely to be admitted to the ICU. Uh, we know that hyperglycemia is a, uh, is a form of a chronic inflammatory state, and it induces immune dysfunction. So it's, um, it's a form of immunocompromise. And uh, one of the fascinating things is that um, the angiotensin-converting enzyme type 2 receptor, which is the receptor for SARS-CoV-2, it's actually expressed widely throughout the body, including on pancreatic um, cells. It's amazing. And they they found back in 2004, in the 2004 SARS outbreak, they found that the coronavirus enters the pancreas and actually causes acute diabetes. Um, We don't know if that's the case with um, our current pandemic, with SARS-CoV-2. But again, um, just uh, all kinds of surprises with, uh, with this coronavirus. So Yeah. Yeah. And um, so we felt that for patients who have diabetes, uh, hospitalized immune compromised, we felt that eight to 10 weeks was a, um, was a very reasonable time frame for these people. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And then your final group is the group that's yeah. been admitted to the ICU. And as you said, whether or not they've been intubated, just being admitted to an ICU. Correct. Yeah. And the, and the data from the ICU, actually, a lot of it came from the um, 2009 influenza A, H1N1 uh, pandemic at that time. And there was a study, I believe it was from Taiwan, which, in which they looked at patients who had survived, been in the ICU, um, but had survived. And they did uh, pulmonary function tests serially on these patients during their recovery period. And they found that parameters of pulmonary function such as total lung capacity, forced vital capacity, FEV1, um, DLCO, six-minute walk. These parameters continued to improve up to three months after uh, patients were discharged from the hospital. And, uh, you know, we, it, it, I think it's pretty well established in the ICU literature that um, patients can have uh, prolonged um, uh, myopathy, uh, prolonged muscle weakness, um, um, after an extended ICU admission as well. So these patients are clearly um, at much higher risk of complications within any short time period after their recovery. Um, so we felt three months or perhaps even more, uh, depending on the patient's state, would be appropriate. Yeah. 
Yeah, very much so. Um, I just, also let, me, to, let me just yeah, ask yeah, quickly, yeah, do, yeah. do we know if, and there, there probably is no way to know, but do, do you think there's any indication of whether patients who are, you know, let's say 12 weeks out from an ICU admission for COVID, how that relates to or compares to the complication rate for patients who were in an ICU for something other than COVID? Like, is there something, no. does COVID make it worse? Yeah, no, I, again, I'm not aware of any studies uh, specifically addressing that question. Yeah, no, and that's, and that's a very interesting question too. Um, I would imagine that there would be some influence uh, based on uh, organ system, right? Because again, COVID can infect, uh, affect all major organ systems. So, you know, are we talking about an ICU admission for, you know, respiratory failure? Are we talking about uh, myocarditis and uh, heart failure? Right. You know, are we talking about... Um, kidney failure and, uh, uh, dialysis. Um, yeah, no, it's, uh, I think those categories can quickly get very, right. very, uh, varied, uh, depending right. on the patient's state. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it would be interesting. I, I think you, there must, we just must not know the answer, but someone admitted, you know, someone who spent time in ICU for ARDS, not from COVID versus somebody who, you know, had ARDS from COVID is there, um, is there a, you difference? Know, is there a difference in terms of long lasting yeah. respiratory complications? Um, yeah, no. Um, there's one thing I wanted to mention, you know, one is that, uh, we are seeing that a lot of patients are, uh, there's a high, um, incidence of residual symptoms in patients who have recovered from COVID. And, you know, that's pretty concerning because, yeah. uh, let's, let's say a patient comes to you in the pre-op clinic and, you know, they want to have a hernia repair or whatnot, but, uh, four weeks out, six weeks out, eight weeks out, what, whatever have you. And the patients say they're still fatigued. Um, they're still getting short of breath with activity. Obviously, their functional capacity is much decreased due to these symptoms. You know, how do we handle these patients? And that was another question that we had been encountering um, from our colleagues as well. And uh, this is a, I mean, this is a really uncharted territory, I think, I feel like. Um, there's very little literature, if any literature, on it. And um, the literature is showing that there's a high percentage of patients who have residual symptoms. So uh, one study uh, from Italy, which was published in JAMA over the summer, found that uh, at a median follow-up of 60 days, uh, that's a long time, right? 60 days, two months, um, only 12% of the patients said they were completely symptom-free. 12%. Wow. That's, yeah. Um, and 43% of them reported dyspnea uh, at 60 days, right? And so that's, uh, that's really significant. Um, and then a study from the U.S., which was published in um, uh, Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, um, found that uh, 29%, so almost a third, reported shortness of breath at uh, two to three weeks after the diagnosis. And these are actually patients who are outpatients. So these are patients who um, were never admitted to a hospital and they're still reporting shortness of breath two to three weeks after their diagnosis. Um, yeah. And so this is, a, uh, I feel, a pretty um, problematic area in terms of patients, you know, who are, uh, have residual symptoms and are going to come in for um, surgery, consideration for surgery. Uh, the question that we were, you know, in, in kind of throwing around amongst ourselves was, well, you know, obviously these patients need a higher level of workup, a more extensive and intensive workup. But... Um, you know, is that really going to yield us anything? You know, are we going to do PFTs and, um, you know, what is the value of that? Or are we going to do an echo or, uh, you know, are we going to do something more, a, a chest CT? 
Uh, and these are questions that are really unanswered. And um, I feel at this point have to do, um, have to handle on sort of a case by case basis. Right. No, absolutely. And, and uh, I think really, you know, having a broader guideline or policy or a way to feel like you're at least, you know, practicing some, some best practices is really important. Yeah. Yeah. Again, you know, I do want to emphasize that, you know, this is uh, sort of the product of our research, uh, of a literature search. You know, it's not meant to be, uh, these timelines are not meant to be definitive. They're not meant to be guidelines. Um, but uh, I, I think they're a good starting point um, to make an informed decision about when it's appropriate to bring a patient to surgery uh, with an eye to reducing their post-op pulmonary complications. Um, again, we've sort of put together the emerging knowledge, the existing knowledge, and as well as clinical judgment um, to shed some light on uh, this question. Whereas currently we felt that we were sort of operating in the dark and just making ad hoc decisions, which, um, you know, obviously is not, um, not really optimal. Right. You know? No, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Jason, anything else um, you think we should cover uh, for folks here? Yeah, there was one thing that I wanted to mention as well. Um, and so, you know, being, being a cardiac anesthesiologist, I uh, have an interest in um, the, the cardiac effects of uh, COVID, mm. which, which has also been very interesting. Um, there was a study uh, from Germany over the summer. Uh, they did a cardiac MRI study in 100 patients, which is really a pretty tremendous undertaking, you know, yeah. considering that cardiac MRI is a pretty uh, time-intensive, uh, uh, you know, um, investigation. So anyway, 100 adult patients at a median of 71 days after diagnosis. So this is 10 weeks, right? Um, adult patients, they found um, evidence of ongoing myocardial inflammation in 60% of the patients. And um, th- what's really interesting about this is that the, the presence or absence of the inflammation was actually not correlated with the, the severity of their COVID disease when they had had mm. COVID. And so, um, yeah, no, it's very interesting stuff. Um, troponin was detectable um, at the time of their MRI in 71% of patients, so almost three-fourths. Wow. Uh, so it really goes to show you that uh, there are some long-term effects of COVID that um, probably are just going unrecognized within the general population. Uh, and these patients are showing up for surgery and, you know, um, and w- what is the effect of ongoing myocarditis or ongoing my- myocardial inflammation on a patient's postoperative course or perioperative course? It's really hard to say. Um, but I think it's important that we have the recognition that this is possibly out, you know, this is out there. Um, what's very, very interesting about this study is that they also did echoes on all of the patients as well. And the patients had, uh, the patients who had evidence of ongoing myocardial inflammation had very, very slightly decreased EFs. So uh, according to their data, um, those patients had an EF of 57 um, plus minus a standard deviation of six, whereas in the healthy controls, the healthy controls had an EF of 60 uh, plus minus five. So you can see that uh, the standard deviations of those um, two values are overlapping. So the upshot of what I'm taking away from this is that a lot of patients who come for preoperative evaluation and uh, get an echo, could have, conceivably, they could have a normal EF, and yet they could have uh, ongoing myocarditis, ongoing my- myocardial inflammation that's not being picked up or recognized by a transthoracic echo. And right. the question becomes, well, what is the significance of this? Again, you know, what, what can be done about this? 
it's it's really tough to say. I I, I don't I don't think I have a uh, a good answer for the audience about that. I really don't. Yeah. Yeah, I think we'll just have to keep our eyes out for more as this gets as we get further in and more people go through and we'll see what's seen and what studies are done, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing that's very exciting is that there is one study that's being um, that's ongoing right now, and it's called the uh, COVID. It's from the same group um, that did the COVID surge collaborative um, that that had the uh, 122 patients that I'd mentioned where they found the four weeks was sort of the inflection point. Um, right. And they called it the uh, the COVID surge global week study. And um, it's uh, it's very interesting. They basically. Uh, for lack of a better term, they sort of crowds, they, they made a website and they invited pretty much any hospital or any investigator from any hospital around the world to uh, join them um, in this study and basically input data, uh, obviously anonymized, anonymized patient data and patients who had uh, recovered from COVID and then at various time periods after their recovery undergone surgery. Um, and so they basically crowdsourced the study, collect collected data, I believe, in October and into the beginning of November. Um, as of November 21, uh, I, I followed them on Twitter. They had tweeted that they had recruited 100,000 patients from wow. 110 countries. Um, and so this is going to be very exciting because they're act- this is actually the exact question they're looking at, the timing of recovery uh, from surgery. I mean, I'm sorry, sorry, recovery from COVID and then the timing of surgery and then post-op complications. So hopefully with this very robust data set, um, we're going to get a lot of answers. And um, for the listeners who are out there, um, I think this is going to be pretty exciting stuff. So again, the COVID surge global week study. um, And I think that's going to hopefully shed a lot of light on this important question and um, give us sort of a way forward on this. Yeah, that's great. It will be really helpful to see. Anything else uh, on the topic? You've put a lot of great work and thought into it. Yeah, no, no. Um, I think that, you know, um, yeah, I sort of covered the major portions of it. Um, Again, I do uh, want to recognize my collaborators, uh, Carlos Brun, uh, Jody Lang, um, and then um, also Kyle Harrison and Clarity Kaufman at the VA in Palo Alto, who also uh, took a look at our manuscript and um, uh, gave us some feedback also want to thank our uh, department chair, Ed Mariano. He's been very supportive of us and, um, and uh, is obviously um, very, very helpful in terms of giving us editorial feedback and um, content feedback as well. So, uh, no, I think that, that kind of wraps it up. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. This has been great. Let's go to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. What's something that you would random. recommend to the audience? Something you've been doing during COVID that yeah. has kept you busy, yeah. a movie, TV show, whatever you think. Sure, sure. Um, sure. Now, this is uh, actually, I, I may have spent more time thinking about this than I did about the paper. <laughs> 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 no, um, no. Um, so one thing is uh, actually one thing that caught my eye recently was um, it's a movie that's coming out soon, I believe. Um, I don't know if it's going to be released online or what's have theatrical release. Uh, it's uh, anyway, it's a it's a movie called Minari, M-I-N-A-R-I. And Minari is a uh, it's a it's a plant which is, I, I believe, native to Korea. And it's a type of uh, parsley, I, I believe. And it's the name of the movie, and it stars uh, Stephen Yun, who is of uh, uh, Walking Dead fame. He was Glenn in Walking Dead, and uh, he's a Korean American actor. And it's uh, 
very interesting uh, story about a Korean family um, that immigrates to Arkansas and uh, wants to begin a new life there. And uh, it's uh, when I saw the trailer for it, it really sort of hit home because, you know, I being uh, the, the child of immigrants, um, also from Korea, uh, it, uh, there are a lot of scenes in that movie that, uh, in the trailer at least, that uh, kind of hit home for me. Um, and uh, Stephen Young, obviously a great actor, and uh, just looked like a really great cast. Really interesting uh, movie. And uh, just a movie about, you know, the American dream, right? Uh, coming to America to live a better life and, uh, and um, how that plays out. Um, I thought that was uh, just looked really interesting. So I'm hoping to see it soon. And, uh, and so I'm looking forward to that. The other uh, uh, recommendation, uh, not, not quite so random perhaps, but something that uh, um, has a special place in, uh, uh, for me is um, if for those of you who are considering um, any types of uh, charitable donations would be for um, Doctors Without Borders, also known as MSF for short, which is a French name. But uh, I have a connection with them because um, after I finished my fellowship, I uh, worked for uh, Doctors Without Borders um, for three months as a volunteer anesthesiologist um, overseas and uh, really uh, a life-changing experience, mm. you know, a positive life-changing experience, pretty challenging experience, I would say. Um, but uh, I can assure you, I can assure the listeners that um, donations to MSF and Doctors Without Borders are being spent um, well. Um, they're being spent to help the lives of people who are, you know, caught in very unfortunate circumstances, which are mostly beyond their control. And uh, as someone who has uh, volunteered for them, I feel that, uh, yeah, I mean, they're just, they're doing great work. Um, so that's my little plug for them. So, great. Well, yeah. great recommendation. We'll put links uh, in the show notes. And um, I would say uh, that I am going to recommend a, a little kids show called Daniel Tiger. So it's oh, yeah. not I'm something totally I would that. recommend people. Why have you, you guys use this, but I think for I, like, I, our, I have seen it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I, you know, for our like two and a half, three year old type age, I think it starts to, if you're going to let them watch a little bit of something, it starts to teach them good, good ways to handle their anger and frustration. Um, and it's fun. They like it. So it's a, it's something I would check out if you got little kids. I, I, I recommend that as well. Yeah. Yeah. My daughter, my daughter had the uh, Daniel Tiger phase as well. So <laughs> nice. Yeah. We, uh, we're, we've made good use of it over time. Um, well, Fantastic. Jason, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show and for doing the work that you've done. Thank you for having me, Jed. It was a pleasure. All right. That was great. I hope everybody found that useful. I know I definitely did. Please let us know what you thought. Go to the website, com. You can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Jay Walpaw, and we're at ACRAC Podcast. You can join the Facebook group as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you would like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make individual donations anytime you like by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Wolpaw on Venmo.
Huge thanks to those who have already become patrons and made donations. We really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. Big thanks, as always, to Dr. Brian Park, our tech lead, to April Liu, our social media manager, and to Dr. Kimia Kashkuli for her ongoing help. Original Akbrak music is by Dr. Dennis Quo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the Akbrak Podcast and Dr. Jason Chi, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.